Every Christmas Eve in my family, we would move the heavy kitchen table from the kitchen down into the family room. That's where the Christmas tree was. And there we sat, not a few feet from a pile of gifts and a beautifully decorated tree. My mother uh, had some ornaments on the tree that had been heirlooms that she'd, given from, that she'd gotten from her parents, but some were also gifts or ornaments that we had made as little kids, and those are the ones that she treasured the most. It, it made an interesting look on the tree, these beautiful antique glass ornaments and these really awkwardly cut uh, paper ornaments by five-year-olds. Nearby, of course, were our stockings. My grandmother had knit our stockings uh, for each one of us. They had our names in ours. Uh, Mine, however, was a bit damaged because our cat thought it was a play toy at one point, uh, and it was awkwardly repaired. Behind us, of course, was the roaring fire. In Massachusetts, they actually have real fires. And, And my father loved fires. He loved the smell of the woods and the, and the crackling sound that it made, although the only downside was as the night wore on, my back would get so warm that occasionally I'd have to adjust my chair so I didn't get a toasty back. Christmas Eve was a time when uh, my mother went all out for dinner. I don't know what your traditions are for Christmas Eve dinner, and I'm not exactly sure where ours came from, but for some reason my parents, when I was a kid, went out and bought lobsters for dinner. Again, a very New England thing. And we would have boiled lobster and oyster stew. Now, my father's father was the one who made the oyster stew, so we would make oyster stew as part of that tradition. I used to dislike it intensely until I was about 18, but I've loved it ever since. And then we also had steamed artichokes. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure how that's a Christmas tradition, but we as kids loved them, and so my mother had them. And that was our tradition for years and years, the same meal. In the background, we heard our Christmas CDs, the ones my mother always loved. As we sat around the table, we also had the sounds from church echoing in our ears. We were one of these families who went to the early Christmas church service. Uh, It was uh, in that town, in that Massachusetts town in which I grew up. Of course, there aren't many churches in Massachusetts, unlike Texas. So on Christmas Eve, uh, people pile into the churches from all, uh, all corners of the town. We just set up extra chairs in the aisles to accommodate all the people. Uh, as a little kid, I didn't mind it. I thought it was kind of fun to be jammed in. I didn't have the sense to turn to people and say, where are you the rest of the year? <laughs> I was very happy everyone was there on Christmas Eve. And then after dinner, uh, we would be allowed to open one gift. I don't know, do you have that tradition? You open one gift on Christmas Eve? Although usually it was a gift that my mother had chosen and pointed out to us, uh, perhaps to give us a taste of maybe what was to come if we were good and if Santa came. We eagerly anticipated the mother load the next morning. Of course, as we grew older, it became more about the meal and less about the gifts. And the final memory, my final memory of those evenings was uh, of, of lights. Our family would put... Uh, these electric lights in the windows, every window in the house. And on Christmas Eve, the one eve of the year, we'd leave them, we'd leave them on the whole night, which to my father, who was an old New England Yankee, who would like turn off the lights whenever he left the room, this was a, seemed a big extravagance. And this light would shine through the blinds, and so as I'd go to sleep, I'd be staring at that light, thinking of Santa coming sometime There wasn't just one of those elements, though, 
that made Christmas Eve special? As I think back at it and I try and think, what, what was it that made those Christmases so important to me? I can't put my finger on just the one thing. It's almost as though the whole combination gave it a certain spirit, a certain something. And those traditions, those rituals are then repeated year after year. It became almost magical, spiritual. You know what I mean? My favorite biblical text for Christmas Eve is the text that I read a moment ago from the Gospel of John. Now, I love the text from the Gospel of Matthew with Joseph and the angel coming to him in the dream, telling him about the unexpected pregnancy that was coming, Herod and the wise men. I like even more the text in Luke where you have uh, the angels appearing to shepherds and shepherds announcing the great news to Mary and Joseph who had to make this long trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. The Gospel of John, the text that we just heard, is the most spiritual of all the accounts. I've always been moved by its declarative sentences, the rhythm of the prose, the theological truth that's buried in there. It always makes me consider the sense of the incarnation a little bit more deeply. And there's one line in that passage that always catches my eye. Something that's odd, something that you, you might not expect. It calls into question certain things that we think about Jesus and the Incarnation. Listen again to John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. His own people did not accept him. Consider that for a moment. We have this common perception of Jesus as the God-man. He was perfect in every way. When you close your eyes and think of Jesus, you think of him as gorgeous, long flowing hair that's perfectly combed and quaffed, his physique toned and flawless. Surely if you'd seen Jesus walking on the street, you'd be like, wow, that Jesus. This is why, you know, people's, you know, perceptions of this perfect God man is why some people get so disturbed when you get reminded that in fact he was Palestinian and not Caucasian. <laughs> some people get annoyed by that. But there's this notion that we had this perfect manifestation of humanity walking before us. And if that's the case, why did not everyone go, oh my goodness, this guy's special? A lot of people rejected him. You ever thought about that? Now again, this is, this is, this is late Second Temple Judaism. They're expecting a Messiah. There are others who claim to be Messiahs. And then all of a sudden, this amazing, perfect God-man rolls on the scene and people didn't accept him. You ever think about that? Maybe there's some things that we're missing here. Later Christians in the 4th and 5th centuries wrestled with how to talk about the Incarnation. 
They tried to figure it out given the philosophical language of their days. And out of these fiery debates came the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Settlement, words that those of you who grew up in the Roman Catholic or other traditions are probably familiar with. Jesus was true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. He had two natures, one human, one divine, unmixed, yet held together in a hypostatic union. This type of language has defined Christian orthodoxy for the past 1,500 years, and yet it would have been totally alien to people who met Jesus along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. The reality is, what they would have found is an average Palestinian dude, probably very average-looking Palestinian dude, preaching a very powerful message, healing people. So why do you think some people who met this living Jesus believed that he was the Messiah, while others rejected him? Serious question. Why did some people get it, while others couldn't see it? Who believed Jesus was the Messiah, and who didn't? That Samaritan woman at the well She was able to see it. Here was a Jewish man, a Jewish rabbi, no less, talking to her. That never happened. But not only did he talk to her, he made the effort to get to know her and showed that he knew her. She knew that something was different about him. The woman caught in adultery, she figured it out. There she was about to be stoned to death, surrounded by all these people, judging her for what she had done. And then Jesus kneeling down and tracing out a small circle said he without the first stone should cast he without sin should cast the first stone he understood about him or the man born blind he was born blind and people said that's because of some sin of his parents or some sin of him and Jesus said that was not the case his healing gave him sight that man understood the same could be true for uh, Zacchaeus, the hated tax collector who Jesus called down from the tree. The outcasts and the prostitutes that Jesus shared his table with, they believed. Even the centurion who stood at the foot of the cross and gazed up at the suffering innocent Christ, he got it. Would you have believed if you saw him? The Pharisees couldn't see it. They were too caught up in their own self-righteousness to hear the message. They knew what the truth was and didn't want to hear anything from anyone else. Same was true for the Sadducees, those who controlled the religious establishment of the day. Jesus' message threatened their power. Roman authorities, they didn't believe either. But then again, the only thing the Romans believed was the rule of power and might. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, the passage we read, we hear, that, we hear about the Word, this Word of God. Now, in classic Christian theology, you have three persons in the Trinity. I know a lot of people, especially people who grew up Roman Catholic, are nodding their head. Three persons of the Trinity. You have God the Father, uh, sort of patriarchal language of the day. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God the Son, of course, is the second person of the Trinity, separate from the first person. That second person of the Trinity is the Word of God, the self-expression of God. 
Christians claim that this word of God, this self-expression of God, becomes manifest in a person named Jesus of Nazareth, who was fully human, who suffered as you suffer, who had emotions as you have emotions, but was the expression, the manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, the word of God. He was infused with this word of God. Here in this church, I'm not going to ask you to make a leap of faith to believe something about Jesus. I'm not going to hand you a creed and say, abide by this in order to get who Jesus was. Because again, I don't think that would have made sense to any of the first believers of Jesus, any of the people who interacted with him as a person. For those people, they interacted with him and had contact with what they saw was the word of God. Something in their interactions, something in what he said, what he did, convinced them that Jesus was the manifestation of the word of God. And that moved them, transformed them. Now, I love the Christmas season. My favorite seasons, like many of you, though some of the parents and others are lucky that are happy that it's over, almost over. <laughs> it's stressful. But the Christmas season is one of these things. We're in the midst of it, in the midst of the traditions that you create in your family, in the midst of the shopping and gifts you do for others, in the midst of the extra time you might volunteer at an organization or the extra money that you might give, I would say that you have an interaction with the Word of God. You somehow can experience God. It could be a, uh, you watch a Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life, and something inside you speaks to something eternal in that could be in any kind of tradition that you do. It could be in your favorite song that you have. It could be in the meal that you share with someone. It could be the fact that you actually enjoy talking to that relative that you normally don't talk that you normally don't like talking to. Some aspect of the Christmas season we experience the word of God. So that's why part of me isn't that unhappy by some of the secularism of the tradition. As long as at the heart of it we can experience the word of God, there's some essence of Jesus there. The key is, in this season, if you experience the word of God, if you experience God's presence in some aspect of the season, can you hold on to that afterwards? Can you carry that with you? If you can, you're carrying a bit of Jesus' presence with you too. This is why churches are so important in this season. Hopefully, each and every one of you have had some interaction with Jesus that has moved you. Some passage you've read something you've done and gotten involved in through church that moved you deeply, convinced you that Jesus was somehow this manifestation of the word of God. And I hope that the Christmas season can give you a bit of that too. That after all the wrapping paper is all thrown in the trash, and after all the family has gone home and the gifts are sort of safely packed away on their shelves, that some bit of the spirit of the season, some bit of that word of God can stay with you. Because if it can and to see the incarnation in more places than you have otherwise. And hopefully when you read the Bible and you can see the words of Jesus, you can see them in a new light. You can see that they are living words. With you. I like this passage in the Gospel of John because, again, it talks about the word of God through which the world comes into being. The word of God is here and present. Not only in our interactions with Jesus, but in our interactions with other people. Carry that bit from this season onward. 
maybe we can come to a deeper understanding. Mm -hmm.